Um, as you are aware, as you've noticed with the, the Christmas um, the Christmas songs, Christmas carols, Christmas hymns uh, kicking in, we're in that, that season of Advent, those um, Sundays uh, leading up to um, Christmas Day. Uh, this year, uh, it's been our practice, at least historically, in case you're wondering, um, to do Advent sermon series every other year. So in the even-numbered years, we do... And decidedly intentional um, Advent series. Uh, Part of the reason for the every other is um, really a couple of reasons. One is um, the church calendar is helpful, uh, but not biblical. Um, It's helpful for us to think about, but it's 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 not something that comes out of Scripture itself necessarily. Uh, Certainly, no command for us to to keep church calendar sort of um, schedules. Uh, like there was in the Old Testament. Uh, and two, because I'm just not creative enough uh, to come up with sermon series on, I mean, there'd just be a lot of Luke 2 and Matthew 1 every single year, which is fine too, but um, just for uh, just for that sort of sake, we kind of do every other year uh, in terms of Advent series. This year, um, we're actually... Uh, I, I'm, the plan is to use Christmas carols as sort of the foundation for the sermon series. So basically Christ in Christmas hymns, Christ in Christmas carols. Uh, and you'll notice, um, I assume, that if you glance down at the sermon title and see Come Thou Long Expected Jesus, you think, wait, that's a song. I know that song. And we're going to sing it after the sermon. So there's kind of the the connection. Uh, and so to that end, let me ask that you turn to Genesis chapter 3, but let me also uh, get you to turn to Luke chapter 2. Uh, so you'll want to you'll be prepared for both. We're going to read uh, both passages uh, this morning, which is why I had you go ahead and sit down. It's just too hard to thumb and turn and find and, and then flip, and they're fairly long-ish. Um, at least all taken together, fairly long-ish uh, passages. So, Genesis chapter 3, beginning in verse 8, uh, just to sort of set the context, you're, you're familiar with the fall, you're familiar with Adam and Eve, there's a serpent, interacting in the garden, taking the fruit, eating the fruit they weren't supposed to eat, and um, hiding then uh, as a result of their nakedness. They realized they were naked, they made rudimentary clothes for themselves, Um, And then verse 8. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord, from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. And then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? The woman said, well, the serpent deceived me and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field on on your belly, you shall go. And dust you shall eat all the days of your life. 
I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And to the woman, he said, I will surely multiply, multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth uh, children. Your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. And to Adam, he said, because you have Listen to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you. You shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you to eat. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken for your dust. And to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all the living. And the Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of skins and clothed them. And now Luke chapter 2, beginning in verse 22. And when the time came for the purification, according for their purification, that's, um, that's Jesus and Mary, Uh, And when the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and his and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law. He took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the Word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray together. Uh, we pray, O Holy Spirit, that You uh, who uh, took Simeon to the temple that day, uh, who filled Simeon, uh, who explained to him, who revealed to him that this was the Christ, uh, would You open our minds and hearts, our ears, uh, to hear, to believe, to embrace, to trust, in that same Christ, our Savior. Uh, Use this, Your Word, to draw us closer to Him and to uh, renew us after His image. We pray all of this in Christ's name and for His sake. Amen. Uh, You know, we hate waiting. Um, It's... it's, I I could... I, I could use a Princess Bride illustration. I won't. I'll spare you the Princess Bride this week. Um, but we really hate waiting. Uh, we know that patience is a virtue. Uh, we know that uh, patience is a fruit of the Spirit. But the reality is, we don't really want it. We don't like to wait. Um, 
get stuck in a drive-thru at Chick-fil-A for more than six minutes, seven minutes, and you can't figure out why in the world they can't seem to do it faster. And this is Chick-fil-A, right? I mean, these are the people that this year we have said, you know what? They should be in charge of COVID testing because they do it better than anybody else. They should be in charge when the vaccine comes out. We should put Chick-fil-A in charge of giving out the vaccine because they operate the drive through better than anybody we know. And more recently, it even got to the point where we said, you know what? They might as well run elections and ballot counting also. Well, the reason we say that is because they are good at the drive through thing. And we hate waiting. It's a drive... You don't even have to get out of your car to walk inside and order food and walk... It's a drive through And that's not fast enough for us. But imagine waiting thousands of years. Not, not you know, tens of seconds... We might be able to do tens of seconds. Imagine waiting thousands and thousands of years. That's where Simeon is in Luke 2. Okay, he hasn't been waiting a thousand years. He's not that old. But God's people have been waiting for thousands of years for the fulfillment of God's promise to send the Messiah, to send the Christ, to send the One who would come and redeem His people. God's people have been longing for this day since the Garden of Eden. And and we read just a few minutes ago the first promise of the Gospel all the way back in Genesis 3, verse 15. When God says, uh, tells the serpent, I'll put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head, you shall bruise his heel. You will inflict pain, he will deliver the crushing blow. And immediately... Now look... It seems from reading Genesis 3, that the first sin in the garden, not the first sin ever, because that that happened in heaven, another time and place, but the first sin on earth in the garden appears to be minutes old. As you read through Genesis 3, it sounds like ate the fruit, went and hid, God comes walking in the garden in the cool of the day and Adam and Eve aren't there to fellowship with Him. You get the sense that this was, had been some sort of pattern. You, you, you read the chapter and the first sin on earth is minutes old. And already God announces the solution to the problem. Already in verse 15, we're told by God that the rebellion of Adam and Eve in the garden, which happened just a few minutes ago, is going to be solved by her offspring. 
who's going to crush the head of the serpent. You know, there are people out there who would suggest to us that Adam's sin in the garden caught God off guard. There are people out there who would suggest that God didn't see that coming and He had to quickly scramble because this isn't how I envisioned this relationship thing with Adam and Eve going. And that God had to quickly suddenly figure out, well, now what am I going to do? You read Genesis 3 and, and the events happen too quickly for that. God was never caught off guard by Adam and Eve's sin. It's not like He didn't see that coming. He intended all along, even from before the foundation of the world, to sacrifice His Son to atone for our sin and our guilt. You just see how quickly God introduces the plan to save the world from sin immediately after, immediately on the heels of the very first sin on earth. God wasn't caught off guard. He knew they were rebels. He knew they would rebel. He knew He would send His Son to suffer and bleed and die on behalf of His people. In fact, Charles Wesley in Come Thou Long-Expected Jesus. Charles Wesley understands um, that, that Christ was born to set His people free from our sins and our fears. The very birth of Christ was intended to accomplish our deliverance, our freedom. Charles Wesley understood that freedom. He was uh, converted as an adult. Actually, he was converted after he was ordained to the priesthood. He was converted after spending a very brief time in Georgia because it turned out not to be what he expected. So he came to the states, which weren't the states yet. But you know, he came, was in Georgia, um, invited here by uh, General Governor Oglethorpe, um, very quickly decided this was not where he wanted to be, that Georgia didn't have what he thought it would have. He went to Boston for a time, returned home uh, to the UK, and was converted there. He wrote literally thousands of poems and hymns. It's hard to tell the difference because a lot of poems can then just get set to music and boom, it's a hymn. Um, but he literally wrote uh, thousands of, of poems and of hymn, hymns. And it's interesting, really, because the, the guy we look at as the father of Methodism never considered himself anything other than Church of England. His brother John wanted to bury him somewhere different, and, and his response was, look, I have lived and I will die in communion with the Church of England, and so I want to be buried in my parish church graveyard. But Wesley writes of a Savior born to set us free from our fears and our sins. And that plan to, to introduce, to deliver us from sin is introduced just verses after Adam and Eve ate the forbidden fruit. 
And then you fast forward several thousand years to Simeon. Waiting in the temple as Jesus, uh, Mary and Joseph, they bring Jesus to come to the temple. Uh, you, can, you can read um, Exodus, you can read Leviticus, you can find their uncleanness and the, the prescription for uh, offering a sacrifice because he's the firstborn son, because she's bled and therefore unclean, and so they come uh, for their own uh, purification in the temple. And, and, and you notice, even as an infant, um, Jesus keeping the Old Testament law, the Old Covenant law, on behalf of His people. But we're told that Simeon is there in the temple and he's been waiting for the consolation of Israel, which is the very language that Wesley picks up. Israel's strength and consolation, hope of all the earth thou art. Consolation of Israel was a fairly common term. You notice Simeon's not the one using it. Luke is. He's waiting for this consolation. What is what is consolation? If you were asked to define consolation, You've, if you watch sports enough, okay, there's the consolation round or the consolation match where the, the the two losers from the semifinal game, you know, get to play each other to find out who's third and fourth. That, that's the consolation game. We'll we'll console your loss by giving you another chance to play for the bronze medal or for nothing at all. We think of consolation as merely taking away pain or suffering or hurt or tears. We think of consolation as as the removal of something that is difficult for us. Uh, to take away our sadness, quite honestly. In fact, that's, that's Webster's sort of definition. To console means to make feel less sad. That definition makes me feel more sad. Consolation, to make someone feel less sad than they are right now. Not to make them feel good, but just to remove sadness or sorrow. Maybe you've, um, you've lost a loved one. Maybe you've just found out that your company is is terminating your department and and you're being transferred to another part of the country maybe maybe you've lost something near or someone near and dear to you you've received some sort of news that that makes you sad that causes you to to feel sorrowful and and to hurt and to weep and typically what happens is friends will come around you, family will gather around you, and they'll sit with you, much like Job's friends did. Until they opened their mouth, they actually were helpful. They were, they were fine friends until they started to speak. We, people gather around, we, we sort of circle around people to try to share that burden, to console, to make people feel less sad. And, and that's fine for 
the troubles and the pains and the sorrows of this world, but what of, what of eternal sorrows? What about eternal pain? What about eternal anguish? What about spiritual uh, depression and, and fear? The reality is that consolation in the Bible actually is more than just taking away sadness. It's actually giving something. It's giving calm and peace and hope. You you can think of David, King David, when Bathsheba had finally uh, given birth to their child, um, a product of, of adultery, but of his forced adultery on her and and ultimately killing, murdering her husband. The child was sick and and struggled. And while the child was alive and sick and and struggling for his very life for for breath, David fasted and he prayed and he he covered himself in sackcloth and ashes. and, And the moment he got the news that that child had died, and his servants were afraid to tell him, like, if this is how he's reacting now, what's he going to do to us? Who's going to be the one? Here, draw the short straw. You have to be the one to go tell David that his child... And you remember what David did. He got up, he took a bath, and got food. He was consoled in that moment. Not that his sorrow or sadness was taken away from him, but there was a, a trust and confidence and peace in God's will in God's work in his world he trusted in God's sovereignty his his fasting and would not do any good now that the child was no longer alive and so he rested in the arms of his heavenly father Biblical consolation is more than just the absence of sadness. It's the presence of peace and joy. And spiritual comfort, spiritual consolation comes through Christ. We have peace with God because of Christ. We have peace with God because He is the Prince of Peace. Whatever longings, desires, wherever we might look for satisfaction, they will all fail until we come to Jesus. The consolation of Israel. But notice the the text and the song also that, that Wesley picks up on this language of the consolation of Israel. He writes, Israel, strengthen, consolation, hope of all the earth thou art. For whom is Christ the consolation? The answer, of course, is, well, for Israel. But who is Israel? The reality is, Israel isn't just, and, and this is so this is true so often in Scripture, Israel isn't a geographical country that shows up on Google Maps that has GPS coordinates that that you can get directions to. But Israel is the church. Israel is God's people. Simeon doesn't call uh, Jesus the consolation of Israel. Uh, Luke does. It's a title given to him by Luke And so Luke understood 
that Christ was coming to console God's people, not just the nation of Israel, for Luke was Greek. Luke wasn't Jewish. Israel isn't always a a nation or a country. It's the church. It's God's chosen people. For that matter, we could look at 1 Timothy 2, I mean 1 Peter 2, 9, which quotes Exodus 19 and calls us, using that language, holy nation, royal priesthood. In Exodus 19, it's describing Israel. And in 1 Peter 2, it's describing the church. Same people. Christ has come to be the consolation of God's people to all believers, Jews and Gentiles alike. In Galatians 6, verse 16, true believers are called the Israel of God, whether they're Jewish or Gentile by physical birth. We are all Israel. Incidentally, if your theology, if your understanding of the Bible, um, and there's, there's teaching out there, uh, that would tell you that um, basically the church is God's plan B. That plan A was Israel, the nation of Israel. And, and they rejected that plan. And when they rejected that plan, God had to scramble and say, well, wait, hold on. We still need a people. And so let's do the church thing and then we'll come back to Israel later at another time. That's not what Scripture teaches. Scripture shows us that the church is Israel. And Israel, the church. Besides, if you believe that the church is God's plan B, you can't sing Wesley's hymn. Because he's not long expected. He's newly discovered. And for that matter, why would we sing he's Israel's hope instead of the church's strength and consolation? If your theology says, well, no, there's two separate people of God. There's Israel and then there's the church and they're, they're divided and, and the church is God's plan B or this parenthesis in time, well, then you have to be careful which Advent songs you actually sing because they don't agree with what you say you believe. Even our favorite Christmas hymns show us and rely on the unity of the Bible, the unity of the Old and the New Testaments, the one church people of God throughout all space and time. The long-expected Jesus, the long-expected Messiah is the consolation of Israel. So how is Christ our consolation? How does He console us? The reality is, we could spend hours answering that question. We won't. I'm going to give you two. I'm only going to give you two. I'm just going to whittle it down to two just for the sake of, of time. The first is, Christ consoles us by taking punishment from us. That's when the seed of the serpent, in essence, bruised the heel of the seed of the woman. Nailed Him to the cross, convinced He'd won, convinced He'd finally eliminated this, this Jesus, and we'll put God's people uh, to rest, uh, to, to bed, to death for all eternity. It was merely a, a bruise on the heel. It was merely a strike to... The ankle. I've told you before, 
uh, to to carry the illustration of Genesis 3 probably further than it intends. But I've told you before that when I was um, in Oxford uh, and, and there was a time when uh, two of the four, so half of the elders, half of the session, uh, the pa- senior pastor, one of the ruling elders had both been bitten by a copperhead and lived to tell about it. Um, both, I think, on the hand. A, a bite, even from a copperhead, wasn't automatically deadly to those two men. The serpent bruises the heel of the seed of the woman, and he, in that same moment, crushed his Head. Why did Christ die? Why was Christ even born? Well, He was born to set His people free. He suffered and He bled and He died to satisfy divine justice, to pay the punishment that our sin deserves. Christ paid our penalty. We read that in Isaiah 53. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Christ consoles us by taking punishment for our sin. And in Christ, Romans 8 tells us, no one can condemn us. Having been freed by Christ, no one can lay a charge at our feet. So believer, be comforted. But Christ also consoles us by granting us forgiveness. Not only does He take punishment, but He grants forgiveness in its place. His righteous life, His sinless obedience, His perfection on earth satisfies the demands of the law for us. And we, having been redeemed by Him, forgiven by Him, having had our debt paid by Him, we walk and are seen as righteous in the sight of God. You know, you think about those moments when a president uses his power to pardon certain criminals, various level criminals, regular men who've committed a crime walk free. But not because the record says, well, they've served their time. When when the president issues that declaration, their record says, huh? They, They didn't do anything. It's, it's wiped from the record as though it never actually happened. When He grants them their, their pardon, their, their freedom, we are pardoned by the act of one man. And is there any greater comfort than knowing that our sin has been removed from us as far as east is from west? You do realize why... Th- Scripture uses east from west and not north from south. 
I mean, we talk about there being a North Pole and a South Pole. There's an end. You can reach a point going west, where going north, where you can no longer go north anymore. That is not true going east and west. Go west, and as far as you go west, there's still more west ahead of you. And there's still more east behind you. Having had our sins removed as far as east is from west, we're forgiven and find redemption in Christ. Christ not only removed from you your punishment, the punishment that you deserve for your sin, He's granted in its place forgiveness. So, believer, be comforted. Let me make just a couple of applications. First is this, where do you find comfort? Are you looking to Christ for your consolation? Are you looking to Christ as the consolation of Israel who has come to actually set His people free from our fears and sins? He releases us. If you look to Him in faith, you are freed from the guilt and the shame of your sin. It's through His first advent, through the work He accomplished in His first advent, His birth, His life, His death, His burial, His resurrection, His ascension, that we find comfort for our greatest need, deliverance from our fears and our sins. But let me make a second application. Grab your, grab your bulletin for just a second and take a look at the song uh, we're about to sing, Come Thou Long Expected Jesus. So Wesley only wrote verses 1 and 4. Verses 2 and 3 are actually late editions. And by late, I mean, I'm pretty sure 1970s. So a lot of us were alive when verses 2 and 3 were added to, um, to this hymn. Should we not be singing, Come Thou Long-Expected Jesus, looking forward instead of looking back? Shouldn't we be thinking about His second advent at least as much, if not more, than His first? We have a promise, not just that Christ has come to save us from our sins, but that He's actually coming back again and at that moment will establish His kingdom more fully, more completely than it is now. Is Christ's kingdom here? Yes, it is. Is He our King? Yes, He is. Is it as perfectly and fully and completely established as it will be in the new heavens and the new earth? No, it is not yet. Shouldn't we be singing this song? Not just thinking of December 25th, 2020. But thinking of Second Advent Day 20... Who knows? Right? Looking ahead to the day... Because we are just as Simeon was. Maybe. Potentially. We're in the middle of sort of anticipating this this coming of the Messiah, this long-expected Jesus. He's, he ascended 2,000 years ago-ish. And here we are 2,000 years later waiting on the very last ver- well, the next to last verse of the Bible which says, Amen, come quickly, 
Lord Jesus. Jesus is still the long-expected Jesus who will return to completely and fully establish His kingdom. Are you living and singing this in anticipation of that day? Perhaps more than anticipation of December 25th, 2020. Until then, may God grant us the grace and the patience to wait for His long-expected Son to come again. Let's pray together. Uh, Lord Jesus, You have uh, promised us, You have assured us that You uh, will come again. You will return one day. And uh, the, the already, but not yet, uh, will become done and final and complete and full. Uh, until that day, would You grant us patience to wait, uh, to expect, to long for, to anticipate, but also to live in this life in light of the world that's yet to come. We pray all of this in the name of Christ our Savior. Amen.